Hi, I'm Lily. And I'm Sophie. And welcome to the Keeping Tabs podcast hosted by the Princeton Public Library's Teen Advisory Board. We interview authors to learn more about the writing process. For today's episode, I am thrilled to introduce Jessica Rubinkowski, the author of The Bright and the Pale, as well as its sequel, Wrath and Mercy, newly released this past March. It's so lovely to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, and thank you so much for having me. I remember this being my initial question for you over a year ago when I first read The Ark of the Bright and the Pale, and I'm curious if your answer is still the same. I really loved how you messed with the idea of what's good and what's evil and everything in between, and we're wondering how you established the ambiguity and how it helped you shape the character of that. Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, when I, oh, sorry, <clears throat> when I saw it, I really... I had to think about it for a second because one, I could not remember what I said originally. <laughs> but uh, I very, very much feel that you know, you know, there's nobody wholly good and nobody wholly evil. And even when that came to religion, when I was a little girl, it, it confused me because I had seen like good people do bad things and bad people do good things, even at a pretty young age. So I was, I was confused, you know how how those two things could exist together. So when I sat down to write a book, uh, that's what I wanted to portray. I mean, Val's choices are what mine would be if I were in that world, uh, just because I'm, you know, a passionate, loyal person. And that is how I created Val to be. And uh, I just thought it was really important to honestly think how how it would play out if a teenage girl was given these decisions because I feel like when you're a teen things are a little less firm you're kind of feeling out yourself and uh your space in the world and so I felt like why it was like the perfect chance to be able to do that with a book so I just kind of sat down and thought about how I'd make decisions with my heart instead of my head honestly that totally makes sense, especially because I think one of the one of my favorite things about the book is that we're able to watch Val grow up while she's, you know, fighting all of these things that we would never fight. But she's having these struggles that we're having, too. And I think that's one of the best things that we get from YA. Me, too. That's actually one of my favorite things about YA, because I feel like uh, at least when I was a teenager, everything felt so big all the time. And I think that's because, you know, your whole world is just a tiny little sec. And so I, that's why I love writing YA, because there's just so much there, both emotionally and plot-wise. So it's my favorite. And speaking of the character's world, the world building of Val's world in The Bright and the Pale is extensive and complex. How did you craft such an engaging society without confusing and boring readers? Because sometimes in fantasy... The world is, you know, so complex that readers can't understand, but yours was like simultaneously intricate and, you know, easy to understand. I'm so glad you said that (laughs) because I actually very specifically write all of my fantasy to be accessible because there are so many people that I know who love Harry Potter or love Lord of the Rings movies but just could not read the books and therefore would not read any other fantasy books because they assumed, you know, they'd be the same way. And uh, that always seemed like such a shame to me because fantasy is so much fun once you're finally inside the world. And so when I set out to write, uh, I do something called scaffolding. 
it's a term I used in or learned in psychology where you start off with a base idea and you uh, slowly build on top of that with tiny details. And so that's what I did when I was writing. I would start with a base idea, like a big chunk that I thought everyone could understand, which was Strana and we're in a cold capital city. And most people can picture that. And then, you know, I add the tidbit about the Thieves Guild and then I add the tidbit about, you know, Valeria's hair and what that means. And so it was all a matter of just slowly building it up in a way that felt natural to the readers while also explaining things, (laughs) if that makes sense. Totally. It's so nice not to get lost in the world building, especially with the first book in a series. You know, you spend X number of pages completely lost, but I, you know, it's really refreshing not to have that. Um, And recently, you know, again, with trends and fantasy, I've noticed that there are a lot of morally gray characters, you know, as they call them, like the Kazbrecker archetype. And we're wondering how you created a character arc for Val that transformed her from some pseudo innocent character that she was um, page one to a more morally gray character by the very last sentence. I, so what I did when I started off with Val is I wanted her to kind of be, you know, have a bit of that survivor's guilt, not really being really able to reconcile. And that played a really big character, part of her character piece at the beginning. And then uh, as she learned more and more about what actually truly happened, I wanted all of the things to be personal, things that would, you know, really hurt her and hit her hard so that the decisions she makes and the things she's presented with, it makes sense while she, why she would let her anger take control and go, you know, the morally gray direction instead of, you know, the higher road. And I, you know, sometimes the higher road's boring and and stuff doesn't get done as quickly. And if you're a a more action oriented person, instead of somebody who thinks that's, you know, you're going to choose the more morally gray decisions I feel because you get results more immediate and I feel like that's kind of how I I started her character is that she was going to be making these decisions quickly and based on emotion and gut instinct instead of really logically thinking it out. And then Alec was supposed to be kind of the foil, the one who is more logical, the one who does spend more time thinking about the consequences. And that's, I wanted them to kind of balance each other out in that way. And I think that's something, again, you can really only get from YA, which is so exciting for readers. Exactly. Like, I feel like that uh, relationships play such a much more vital role in YA than it does in adult. Not to say that all adults like that, but I feel like it, it adds more to the character development in YA than it does in adult for the most part. And that's why I love also writing YAs because those, those relationships, those are foundations, you know, for future relationships or future patterns in your life. So I just really like playing around in that area and showing different sides of, of people, I guess. Because this is a teen podcast. We have a lot of YA authors on and almost every single one of them says something similar. They love the kind of freedom that YA as a genre gives them. So it's really cool to see that, you know, everyone's so passionate about YA, including you. Yes. (laughs) And I know that the bright in the pale is loosely based on folklore, although you did take a lot of creative liberty with it. And we're curious to know, why did you talk about these specific gods in particular? And what was it like working from a mythological text? 
Uh, so the reason I really chose this is because folklore has always been my bread and butter. I think that's really how I got into even storytelling and everything, starting with, you know, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I very specifically remember watching that movie with my dad and then my dad telling me, you know, the kind of sanitized version of the brother, or I think it was Brothers Grimm, but the older fable. And I just thought it was so cool how so much had changed and how they had changed it. And I just became obsessed with old stories and myths from then on out. But, you know, you see a lot of Greek, you see a lot of Roman, and then even they're starting to be a little more Norse. And so I wanted to use something else, something fresh that hadn't really been seen. And my, my husband's family's from Poland. So then I started looking into those those myths because I, I you never hear about them ever. At least I don't in my part of rural Illinois. And so uh, I got super into it. And the older the stories got, the less text there was about it. It seemed like there was a lot of oral tradition. And so a lot of it wasn't written down. And there were a lot of holes in there that I could just, you know, poke around and come up with different ideas and different ways of why something had happened. So when I found Chernobog and Billabog, which are these two kind of brother gods in Slavic mythology, I was really intrigued by that because I like the duality of having two sides at the same point. And I like the, the bond of them being kind of brothers. And I decided to base my religion off that because they're just there wasn't much out there about either of those gods. And I liked the idea of exploring what they could have possibly been in a, in a way that wasn't maybe disrespectful from, to the culture that I pulled it from. So I wasn't writing about what they themselves had, just somebody inspired by them, basically. Got you. I, I think it's so enjoyable. Like I'm, I keep saying this, but you can take so much liberty with YA. And I feel like if we were reading an adult novel, someone would have something to say. Yes. But I think that the best thing about writing for a younger audience as like my, you know, my age is that we know less and we're just eager to know more. And then we get that foundation from these kinds of books, especially this where it's loose, and then we can go off of that. And it's super, super exciting. Um. And then, you know, just advancing discussions about character, Alec and Val's romance seems to be a long time coming. And personally, I was really wondering how you crafted their arc as a couple and how you differentiated between their platonic and romantic love for each other, because they have both. And I think that um, you did a great job of capturing the teenage experience, especially there, um, especially how kids create relationships when they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. So that actually was pretty important to me because um, I like I how do I explain this? <laughs> I always liked the idea of Val being more the aggressor, the aggressive one, you know? I, that's what I was told my entire life. You're too aggressive for a girl. You're too loud, too whatever. And so that's really what I channeled into the book. And there are a lot of people who don't want to put up with that. And honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I kind of based some of Alex's softer traits on my husband who was able to contain the more angry part of me so when I was kind of structuring their relationship I wanted to start with that foundation where Alec and her understood each other because they kind of been through a similar experience and he could help her kind of um, 
process everything. And that's kind of how they began their friendship as kids, where they could kind of process this horrible new world that they're both thrown into. And so when I was working with their platonic love, that's basically what I used was that that joint childhood of trying to figure it all out together. But then when I moved on from their more romantic to their more romantic relationship, I wanted it to be based on, you know, a mutual respect and understanding, which is why they kind of argue and fight so much because they have changed so much in the time they've been apart. But also like that already undying, you know, love they had for each other growing. I think that that's, it was really enjoyable for me because predominantly I'm a romance reader and I like tend to like refuse to read a book. Lily knows this about me. If there's no romance in a book, there's nothing for me there. <laughs> and I, I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I just, it just bores, it bores me. <laughs> but I loved that in the bright and the pale, you didn't need the romance to be the main focus. They fought for something together, which brought that it wasn't what they were for, you know? And I, it was refreshing, yeah. especially in YA, when the center is so often the romance and the plot's just like an added thing that sometimes people throw in, you know, but I think it was <laughs> lovely to read a story that integrated an interesting plot and skillful world building with a romance, you know, which has something oh, really for everyone. I really appreciate that because I did, I, I knew I was kind of taking a risk with it being more softer like brand new romance you know like first love kind of romance mm-hmm. where everything's very timid and shy and you're uncertain even if you've known each other for a really long time so I knew it was kind of a risk and maybe not everyone would enjoy it so I'm really glad that you did find it you know fulfilling at least <laughs> yeah I think especially for teenagers that's really relatable because a lot of people go to school together so they can only pull from their pool of friends to date so there's always that platonic love there. So I can see that being really relatable and likable for a lot of readers. And building off of that, Val and Alec are very authentic and realistic characters. And they're also very distinct and unique. So how do you craft characters like that? Um, I like when I'm writing stories to actually come up with characters kind of first and then the story kind of shapes around them. I do have like a general outline plot of where the beats of where I want this character to go, but I kind of leave the decision up to the character after I create them, if that makes sense. So when I was creating Val, I knew I wanted her to you know, be aggressive, very uh, closed off from everybody and untrusting because of everything she went through as a child and then everything that she's had to experience as she grew up having to hide her true identity and that played into how how I kind of crafted her because I really put myself in that headspace of how I would feel if I was there like getting hit with all the things that Val was getting hit with so I feel like that's maybe why how I go into making these characters is I really like shove my soul into the character I created to kind of move around and see what I would have done I kind of feel like it's because I played imaginary games way too late into my my childhood I think I was about 13 before I stopped so I feel like it's very much like that again like I'm imagining playing with my sisters in our the cornfield out back you know so I feel like that's maybe how I do it is I just really put myself into the character as best I can. 
And, you know, when you say put yourself in, does that mean you're modeling your characters after yourself or just empathizing with them? I would say empathizing because there are certainly some things that Val does, especially in the second book that I, I would not have done. <laughs> you're scaring but, me. I haven't opened it yet. I haven't had time. Yes. Oh I, my. Won't, I won't say anymore. <laughs> but yeah, there's something she does that, you know, I, I would not have done even in my angriest stage. There's just some lines I won't cross. But um, with with Val, I decided, no, like if I was this person who had experienced all these things, yeah, this is what I'd want. I'd want revenge and I'd do anything to get it. And that's kind of how I focus my energy. Kind of forgetting what I had experienced and instead pretending what Val had experienced. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And going off Val's questionable choices, I suppose. It's pretty clear that she is a strong, fierce character, regardless of those choices. And she always puts her family, friends, and values, from what I've seen, above everything else. Sort of. Why yeah, did you choose to have such a dramatic, world-stopping plot twist of an ending? I loved it. I remember, like, dropping my jaw reading that last <laughs> couple pages. Um, so that actually is what I had in my head. That was the spark of the idea for my book. Um, that very last line of the book, the I am vengeance line, that is what came first. I'm still mad about Batman stealing it, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> so that is what I had in my head. And I knew that's what I wanted to write towards. And I knew I wanted her, she had whatever happened to her to have her accept that deal and, uh, you know, truly want to wreck revenge on the entire world had to be on monumental and so when I set out I was like if her parents are already gone and she leaves them gone and her only tie to the world is Alec well he he has to go because that's her breaking point you know she has no one else and so that's the entire scene that I wrote the book up to I I really wanted it to be impactful and I really wanted it to make sense why she finally agreed to such a almost symbiotic relationship with yeah. the god it was freaky you know some of the, some of the god there are some scenes and like the and the end when they're like crawling oh my god it skeeved me out like I, uh, I i was talking to lily who's a huge like horror paranormal fan about how like when i read this kind of stuff i'm never expecting it and <laughs> i don't i don't do like the jump scare horror but i do love like the oh that's unsettling why are you doing that <laughs> always kind of hard so that was super fun for me to understand oh I love writing that because I oh horror movies especially are my bread and butter I love them that's my go-to movie and I feel like a little bit of that always leaks into my writing one way or another my agent keeps saying just you know commit write a whole horror story you're really good at it but um I haven't yet you totally should I would read really it. I don't read hard, but I'd read your horror story. <laughs> Thank you. I have an idea brewing. I, I like it. Kind of like The Witch, but different. But we'll oh see my. if it gets there. That's very exciting. <laughs> Which was your favorite character to write and why? And who was the most interesting to you? Like, is there a difference between your favorite character and the most interesting one? Or are they the same? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think 
my favorite character is actually Chenwa. I love her so much. I feel like she's such a strong character and doing everything in, within the book. And she kind of more comes into her own in Wrath and Mercy, I think. And I just love her as a person. And I want the best for her. <laughs> she's definitely my favorite character. I guess the most interesting character to, to actually write was probably Seraphima because what I did with her originally is not what ended up happening in the final draft of the book. She was way worse <laughs> in the original draft. She, she had very specific reasons for hating Valeria and even more for hating Alec. She was really mean to him in the original draft and that's why Valeria hated her so much originally and so uh you know she was set up to be this bad person she was not supposed to have a a, a redemption arc but for whatever reason both my agent and, and my editor loved her and they wanted her to have you know more of a redemption arc and so it was kind of interesting to put try and put myself into that character who I didn't intend to have that arc and then try and, you know, wiggle it around and make it satisfying, I guess. So I would say that was probably the most interesting character to write. Do you, do you wish that your editor and your agent hadn't made those, like, decisions? Or are you happy with the way her character turned out? Um, the only thing I wish, I'm actually very happy about how her character ended up turning out, especially in Wrath and Mercy. I ended up being very, very great. She was in Wrath and Mercy. And I was like, woof. Because she died originally in the first, in the first one. <laughs> yeah, like I really did her dirty. And, uh, so I wish, the only thing I wish is that I could have put a more firm foundation uh, of why her and Val didn't get along at the beginning of The Bright and the Pale. Because I feel like in the transformation of her character, I lost that. And it didn't make sense. And it just seemed really catty for no reason. So that's probably my only regret. I wish I would have caught that. But other than that, no, I'm, I'm happy she's in there. Perfect. And I think, you know, speaking of Wrath and Mercy, it just came out yes. um, a couple weeks ago. I'm super excited. I have not had time. I have not had time to read a book, let alone the one I've been waiting well, sure. for for a year and a half. <laughs> but what what can you tell us what was your writing or sorry was your writing process different for this book than it was for your debut and how do you go about avoiding you know the sequel slump that so many authors are afflicted by see I think what I think after experiencing writing my sequels that a lot of the reasons authors have issues writing the sequel and in talking to other author friends I feel like this is pretty true is because they're not used to drafting on a deadline uh it it is pretty stressful you know you have to get an entire book done by this time when you had maybe a year or two years to write your debut but I absolutely love the pressure of a deadline it's I thrive when that happens so I actually found it almost easier to write Wrath and Mercy once uh, all of the big changes because like I said Bright in the Pale changed quite a bit all the big changes were done and writing the Bright and the Pale, writing Wrath and Mercy was, I think I wrote it in three months, maybe. I mean, it was very enjoyable to me because I liked that, you know, get it done by this time. Yeah. And it was, it was refreshing. And also that I had my editor to fall back on and kind of if it wasn't good, I had somebody telling, I had a reliable source telling me if it was or if it wasn't. So I feel like I 
really liked writing the sequel. <laughs> and now that I'm drafting without a deadline, I'm like, man, I missed it. I give myself one. I get that. I'm the kind of person that won't do it unless there's a due date. Oh, so yeah. I get I get that. Um <laughs> and you know, today I was on Goodreads reading some reviews and I noticed that there is an untitled book added to your profile. I'm surprised that's up there. I don't know why, actually. I've not sold anything yet. I really but yeah. uh my newest book has I'm editing it to go on submission right now. Ooh. So soon, hopefully. Exciting. I wonder how that got up there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have talked about it, so maybe people assumed. But yeah, no. Goodreads, Goodreads is very good at like revealing the secrets of a they, lot they of really authors. Are. I love it. I get so much information from my Goodreads. Great. <laughs> <laughs> that that's all we have for you today. Oh, okay. That was fun. Thank like you so these. much for joining us. This was wonderful. Yes, I love this. How fun. That concludes today's interview with Jessica Rubinkowski. It was so amazing to hear her talk about building dynamic characters and what it's like to work with difficult character relationships. I loved hearing about the writing process and how it differs book to book. I can't wait to crack open Wrath and Mercy, hopefully curing the anxiety that the cliffhanger at the end of The Bright and the Pale left me. If you want to follow Jessica online, I'll include a link in the description of this episode to their Instagram and Twitter. Feel free to follow us on Instagram too at keeping.tabs.podcast. You can also follow this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you would like to be notified when we post new episodes. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Gavin from Tab for editing today's episode. We'll see you another episode soon.